0: For Sale Two Pairs of Working Cattle and One Good Pair of Young Workhorses Inquire of Jaycox and Green 67 North Salina Street Oh, he the air with the greatest of ease A daring young man on the dime. Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 11. Oh, I'm so excited to share this with you. The research was so fun and frustrating and... ah. Anyway, it's the day of the 1868 Syracuse mayoral election, and the standard has a few last things to say. Let's jump in. Syracuse Daily Standard, Tuesday, February 18th, 1868. Perhaps these last words may reach some doubtful voter. If so, we plainly tell him that the contest today is of national importance. The issue is between treason and loyalty, secession and unionism, tyranny and liberty. The Democrats have nominated their worst man. The Republicans have nominated their best man. The issue is drawn clear, sharp, and distinct. They who love liberty and the regenerate public are ranged upon the one side. They who apologize for treason and would tyrannize over their fellow men are ranged upon the other side. The eyes of the whole state are upon us. The result is everywhere watched with intensest interest. Tonight the telegraph will throb the good or evil news from Lake Erie to Montauk Point, Let your vote help to make it good news. Corrupt influences will be unsparingly used. Money will flow like water to buy votes. Let your vote not be influenced by such considerations. Your prejudices will be appealed to. Let your conscience and reason overcome them. This election is supremely important. It not only involves the endorsement of the men in nomination but its result will be the keynote of the great national contest into which we are about to enter. Let the note be rightly struck. Vote early and then work to make others vote. All the men who chuckled over Union defeats will vote for John A. Green. The McCardle case will come up for argument on the first Monday in March. Hugh here. Did it seem kind of random that that last bit was wedged in between the bits about the local election? Well, I don't think it was random at all. I think this is another example of the newspaper linking the local cause to the state and national cause. See, the McCardle case was about a newspaper publisher in Mississippi who published opposition to the Reconstruction laws enacted by the Republican Congress. He was jailed. He went before a court in Mississippi. He went before the Supreme Court. Yada, yada, yada. Long story short, Congress ixnade the Supreme Court proceedings, and this set a big precedent saying that Congress had the authority to do so. In any event, it seems clear to me that the newspaper publisher is, again, cementing in the minds of the readers the connection between local and national events. As always, you can find more information and links in the show notes. Okay, moving on. All the men who opposed the war will vote for John A. Green. All who believe that a loyal man is better than a rebel will vote for Charles Andrews. The... Grocery firm must have a small stock of flour on hand about now. Hugh here. Ah, note that reference to Jaycox and Green Grocery. John M. Jaycox and John A. Green were partners in a grocery firm on 67 North Salina Street, as you may have noticed from this episode's advertisements. Now, by this time, John A. Green had his fingers in so many political, military, and journalistic pies that one could be forgiven for thinking that that grocery firm was nothing more than a front, and it seems that the Republican newspapers are taking every opportunity to promote just that suggestion. All right, moving on. The Democrats are pressing Johnson to remodel his cabinet. Hugh here. Now, that was absolutely an attempt to link the local to the national. Remember, Johnson was the huge disappointment to the Republicans because he wanted to soft pedal Reconstruction. And as this paper is being published, the Republicans are clamoring for Johnson's impeachment. All right, moving on. All the men who sympathize with treason will vote for John A. Green. All who believe in a government founded on justice will vote for Charles Andrews. Ohio will press the nomination of Grant and Wade at Chicago. Hugh here, once again linking local to state to national. Remember, Grant is appearing along with Johnson in headlines across the country right next to the word imbroglio. Grant is the one who chapped Johnson's ass by refusing to hold out the office of Secretary of War when Stanton, at the behest of Congress, came to claim it. Grant's relinquishing the Secretary of War position was a tacit siding with Congress against Johnson. So Grant is the darling of Republicans right now. Moving on. All who will freely exercise their memories will vote for Charles Andrews. Sunset Cox's chances for confirmation are becoming a little slim. (sighs) Hugh here. Do I sound different? Can you hear that constriction in my throat? Can you sense that my heart is racing? Yeah, that's because I just spent several hours going down a rabbit hole researching Samuel Sunset Cox. Do you know why? Because this is exactly why I do this podcast. To show you what I mean, I'm going to take you through the little investigation that I just did. First, why is he called Sunset Cox? Well, turns out he was an editor for a short time, and back in 1853, he published a piece in the Ohio Statesman about a sunset. This piece was so florid, and some say overwrought, that that nickname Sunset Cox stuck. Well, he sounds like a sweet guy writing all prettily about a sunset, right? Well, let's see what problem the Republicans have with him. This is from the Syracuse Daily Standard of February 13th, 1868, just five days before these articles I'm reading you. The nomination of S.S. S. Cox, a special to the New York Evening Post, says... The case of S.S. Cox, nominated as minister to Austria, was brought up in the executive session of the Senate yesterday, but was laid over at the insistence of Senator Wade, who said that the majority of senators who would vote against Cox were then absent. Mr. Wade also said that he did not propose to let Mr. Cox through the Senate if he could prevent it. He would fight him, he said, to the last. It is understood that the case will be brought up today, and an effort will be made to dispose of it. So once I'd read that, I was too curious to stop until I got to the bottom of it, so I dug and I dug, and next I found this, Syracuse Daily Standard, January eighteen 1868. So we're going back a few more weeks. It is stated that the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations has agreed to recommend the confirmation of Sunset Cox as minister to Austria. We hope this is not so, and if it is, that the Senate will not act upon the advice of the committee. The Senate has full power to reject any nominee of the president. And it seems to us that there were never more cogent reasons for exercising its prerogative than exist in this case. Mr. Cox, although a genial gentleman and an accomplished scholar, was bitterly hostile to the government during the war and was prominently obnoxious among a few members of Congress to the loyal sentiment of the land. He never said a good word for the country's cause when a good word would have been effective. He uttered a bad word upon every opportunity which offered— we do not think the time has yet come when the Republic should bestow distinguished rewards upon its recreant sons. If senators will only examine the record which Samuel S. Cox made during the Great Rebellion, we feel confident that he will be permitted to continue his law business in New York instead of being sent to represent us at the Court of the Habsburgs. Huh. Well, that sounds kind of general, it reminds me of the invective leveled at John A. Green. So let's see what they're talking about. More digging, more digging, more digging. And here we are, June 19th, 1862, so we're going back a couple of years, to the Democratic Press of Ohio. I'm not going to read this whole speech because even this is an excerpt, and this takes up several columns. And the original speech in Cox's own book takes up about 24 pages. I'm just going to read you Cox's conclusion because this gives you a good idea of his speech. Weary in watching its mad designs of revolution and its crazy crotchets of black freedom and for the self-preservation of my native state, and the North from the black immigration with which it is threatened, I shall go to my home and ask the ballot to speak its denunciation. A few months and that expression will be had. On it depends the fate of the Republic. My belief is that the people will write the epitaph of this Congress, nearly as Gladstone wrote that of the coalition ministry during the Crimean War. Here lies the ashes of the 37th Congress. It found the United States in a war of gigantic proportion involving its very existence. It was content to wield the scepter of power and accept the emoluments of office and use them to overthrow the political and social systems of the country, which it was sworn to protect. It saw the fate of thirty-four white commonwealths in peril, but it babbled of the Negro. It saw patriotic generals and soldiers in the field under the old flag. It slandered the one, and in the absence of the other, it destroyed his means of labor. It talked of liberty to the black and piled burdens of taxation on white people for schemes utopian. The people launched at it the thunderbolt of their wrath, and its members sought to avoid punishment by creeping into dishonored political graves. requiescat. <sighs> See what I mean? This is why I do this podcast. Because so often I stumble upon this mad disparity between the impression we have as modern people and the way contemporaries saw them. Sometimes history has filtered and, dare I use the term, whitewashed people so thoroughly that there is almost no resemblance between the two. Don't know what I mean? Well, go to the show notes and follow the link to the NYC Parks page on the Samuel Sullivan Cox statue in Tompkins Square Park. I'm going to read it to you. History. Samuel Sullivan Sunset Cox. 1824 to 1889, was born in Zanesville, Ohio, and served his home state as a Democratic congressional representative from 1857 to 1865 before being unseated. After moving to New York in 1866, Cox served again in Congress for several terms from 1869 until 1889. Although Cox once publicly declared that his most satisfying contribution to public service was championing the life-saving service, founded in the 1840s to patrol the coasts and save imperiled boaters during bad weather, the group was absorbed into the Coast Guard in 1915. This statue is sponsored by U.S. Postal Service workers because of Cox's support for their quality of life issues. Known as the letter carrier's friend, Cox spearheaded legislation that led to paid benefits and a 40-hour work week for postal employees. Mail carriers from the 188 cities named on the monument contributed $10,000 for the statue in a campaign that began soon after Cox's death. Sculptor Louise Lawson's statue of Cox, unveiled in 1891, depicts him orating before Congress. Lawson, 1860s to 1899, came from a prominent Ohio family. She and her brother, U.S. Representative W.D. Lawson, both attended Cox's 1889 funeral at which President Grover Cleveland and General William Sherman served as honorary pallbearers. One might interpret the statue's somewhat stiff quality as representative of Cox's steadfast stance on issues for which he advocated. After the statue's unveiling on Independence Day 1891, the New York Tribune noted, somewhat less charitably, that Cox's usually genial countenance is strained and out of harmony with the congressman's natural demeanor. The likeness is not a good one, and the facial resemblance is hardly suggestive, the article added. A New York Times account of the ceremony questioned whether the statue will ever be greatly admired as a work of art. Nevertheless, a reported 2,500 letter carriers came from as far away as New Orleans and Memphis to participate in the moving ceremony to honor Cox at the statue's unveiling. The statue originally stood near Cox's home on East 12th Street at the intersection of Lafayette Street, 4th Avenue, and Astor Place. In November 1924, due to a street widening project in the vicinity of Astor Place, it was moved to its current location at the southwest corner of Tompkins Square Park. In 1998, the monument was conserved by the citywide Monuments Conservation Program. The treatment included cleaning, cleaning, repatination, and application of a protective coating to the bronze sculpture and plaques. The pedestal was also cleaned, and the lettering was remolded on the front side of the base. And that's it! They saw fit to mention the street-widening project in the vicinity of Astor Place, but they didn't mention any of that stuff that I just read to you. My wife texted me a little while ago, asked me how my day was going. You know what I told her? Motherfucker has a statue! That's how my day is going. Ugh, it's maddening. People like this guy and like John A. Green talked and talked and talked about these lofty notions in such a way as to make it abundantly clear that the very notion of including black people in the conversation was a joke. So, how do I approach this subject with anything remotely resembling objectivity? In the face of such monstrousness, is objectivity a reasonable goal? I don't know. I just know that I'm violating my own cardinal rule of stepping back and seeing people from within their own historical context. Because it's becoming clear to me that at that time, notions of black inferiority were so pervasive, so baked in, that they suffused the very intellectual substrate of the country. So clearly I am becoming more cognizant of the context within which these people lived, but I'm still having a hard time dealing with it. The more I'm presented with it, the more angry I get, and the less able I am to maintain that disconnect. I don't know how historians do this. Anyway, you see why this was so important for me to share with you, right? This little mention of Sunset Cox was wedged in between two articles about the local election, and there's a reason for that. Again, they're tying the local to the national. All right, enough of that. Let's get back to it. All who reprobate treason will vote for Charles Andrews. Ex-governor Thomas Ford of Ohio will probably be made commissioner of patents. Hugh here. I think what we're looking at is an interesting bit of carrot and stick. Previously, they played on partisan fears that a Democrat was going to get elected, and here they're playing to partisan satisfaction that a Republican is going to get elected. Thomas H. Ford was an American Republican politician who served as the third lieutenant governor of Ohio from 1856 to 1858. He was also an anti-slavery figure, so... You can see why they were psyched that he might get elected to the Commissioner of Patents. However, interesting side note, he was not to be elected Commissioner of Patents, or rather, if he was elected, he certainly didn't serve for long. I know that not because I found anything on his election, which I didn't, but because the Wikipedia article says that he died on February 29th, 1868, 11 days after this was printed. Oh man, bummer. Anyway, let's get back to the articles. But first, a word from our sponsor. To Let, the first-class brick store, now occupied by Stevens, Crandall and & Company, and being next north of the stores occupied by us. The store is well-suited for a heavy business. Possession may be had on the 1st May. Jaycox & Green, 67 North Salina Street. We now return to our program. All who have regard for the heroisms of the war will vote for Charles Andrews. All the men who believe Jefferson Davis is a better man than was Abraham Lincoln will vote for John A. Green. All who believe that the sacrifices of our soldiers should not go for naught will vote for Charles Andrews. The impeachment project is being revived in the House. We thought it had received its quietus. Hugh here. Huh? Huh? See what I mean about the Republicans being all excited about the Johnson impeachment? Keep your eye on that. Back to the articles. All the men whose prejudices and passions are stronger than their reason and conscience will vote for John A. Green. All whose consciences are proof against the offers of money will vote for Charles Andrews. Nigger, 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 is the be-all and the end-all of the democratic war cry, be not deceived thereby. All who believe in a virtuous and economical administration of municipal affairs will vote for Charles Andrews. All the men who laughed at the burning of orphan asylums at the hands of a pitiless mob will vote for John A. Green. Let John A. Green exclaim this evening, as did Stonewall Jackson at Chancellorsville, I am killed by my own men. All the men who, in 1864, believed that the war for the Union was a failure will vote for John A. Green. There is not an unworthy name on the Republican ticket. Vote the whole ticket, from Andrews down to your inspectors of election. If you want the police office cleaned out, vote for the Republican candidates who will give us a new, reliable, and efficient office. Hugh here. We lose a couple of lines at the bottom of the column and then continuing at the top. Succeeded in registering a number of illegal voters. The Democrats will swap everything on their ticket for John A. Green. Don't make any trades we are going to elect the whole ticket. The official record of John A. Green is without a blemish? Courier? It is likely to remain so, for it will be without any further entries one way or another. The official record of John A. Green is ended now and forever. Hugh here. Remember last episode when I challenged you to listen to that peace letter of John A. Green and see if you noticed anything unusual? Well, check this out. The Courier of Yesterday pretended to publish John A. Green's peace letter of 1861, but it only gave a few extracts. It dared not publish the whole. It gave but a little over a column. The entire letter is two columns and a half in length and reeks with treason all the way through. Yep, the Standard noticed the same thing I noticed after researching John A. Green's Peace Letter. You may remember this from the previous episode because The Courier published this on the previous day. As the journal and standard takes so much pains in publishing extracts of General Green's peace letter of 61, and have taken extra pains to extract extracts of that letter, we will furnish the letter and that portion they have omitted. The general has no hesitancy whatever in reproducing the letter, which we hope our readers will carefully peruse. Here it is. Now this is Hugh again, Note that the courier never quite went so far as to say that it was printing the whole letter. I didn't notice that at first. The only reason I stumbled across this was that there were a couple of lines missing from the end of the column in the middle of that article. So I went searching for the original to see if I could fill in the gaps. I found the original, and I said, whoa, this is way longer than what the courier printed... I read through it, and what I found was astonishing. The level of expurgation is shameful. Check this out. I'm gonna read to you everything that the courier omitted from John A. Green's peace letter. Let's see if you notice a common thread. Now, as you listen to this, follow along in the show notes and check out the highlighted version of the article that I made, because you've really got to see this to appreciate the level of expurgation. The pink bits are the parts that the Republican newspapers printed about green. The yellow bits are those that the Courier printed while acting for all the world as though it were printing the entire letter. So, look at the white bits. Those are the parts that the Courier left out. Here they are. Without the sanction of Congress, which is alone empowered to declare war, Abraham Lincoln, The accidental choice of a minority of the American people, giving himself up to the extremists of his party, has precipitated the northern and southern states into armed hostilities. Having accomplished this dire result, he calls a special session of Congress. He convenes it, not at an early day when yet it might avert the great calamity, and when it might advise and consult with him to that happy end, but... As if fearful lest it might thwart the bloody scheme, or as if, in imitation of rulers of the old world, who deem it the chief office of legislative bodies to provide the means for the wars royalty may see fit to engage in, he postpones it to a period when his fatal, if not criminal, policy shall have left it no choice but to pay and provide for the fleets and armies he has raised. Why else was the session of Congress, called on 12th of April, deferred to the 4th of July? Did not every reason connected with the public good require its instant assemblage? Or, if it must not assemble earlier, ought not every step tending to civil war, except as called for by the strictest self-defense, to have been delayed until Congress should have been convened and its advice taken? All right, Hugh here, skipping on to the next segment. This accursed fraternal contest into which Mr. Lincoln has hastened us, in contempt of the Constitution he had just sworn to support, is the long-foreseen result of the wicked and persistent assaults made by the party which now holds power in these northern states upon the rights and property of their fellow citizens of the South. The statesmen of the democratic and conservative parties of the country, from Jefferson to our own times, have constantly and assiduously warned the people everywhere of this inevitable result of a sectional anti-slavery agitation. Hugh here, cutting to the next piece. Upon the leaders of the dominant party of this section, not upon those who too confidingly adopted their views, must rest forever the fearful responsibility with which history will visit the destroyers of the work of Washington and Jefferson. It is they who, beginning with the denial of the rights of their fellow citizens in the common territories of the Union, and proceeding to the repudiation by the Chicago platform of the judgment of the Supreme Court of the United States, have forced upon the South this fearful struggle for existence. It is of importance for us to remember the authors of all the difficulty, since every citizen is likely to measure the degree of support he gives to the war by his judgment of its rightfulness and necessity. Hugh here, cutting to the next chunk. When an all but unanimous electoral vote of the northern states declared, in November last, that the South should have no share in the territories, that the Constitution, as expounded by the Supreme Court, should not be obeyed, and that this union cannot remain half free and half slave, see Mr. Lincoln's speech, a war of subjugation against the South was commenced. And yet Mr. Lincoln, since his election to the presidency through his home organ, the Springfield, Illinois, Journal, in an article which the New York Tribune pronounces to have been inspired by him, and as having characteristic of Mr. Lincoln's bold, direct, and forcible style of thought and expression, declares that compromise is not to be thought of, that if made, it must be made by the South. Abraham Lincoln is but carrying on the war then begun. He came into the presidency twelve weeks ago to find seven states seceded— He and the Republican majority in Congress, adopting the no-concession-and-no-compromise policy of the Tribune School of Politicians, and aggravating the disastrous influence of that policy by menaces, coercion, and subjugation, have since succeeded in driving out of the Union four more states— And according to every public publication, is yet pursuing a policy which will as certainly make the southern states still adhering to the Union a unit with those already seceded. And, Hugh here, this is the most glaring discontinuity. This is where, in the previous episode, one paragraph ends, and then the next paragraph just starts in the middle of a sentence. The one that starts, then proposes to carry on. So yeah, the expurgating the courier did was pretty bold. Moving on to the next chunk. War in the 19th century proposes means and appliances for the destruction of human life, which convert battle into mere butchery, where every wound is fatal and the death of thousands may be the work of an instant. War involves the stoppage of trade, the cessation of peaceful industry, stagnation, and irreparable injury to every interest. Factories are silenced, warehouses closed, fields lie uncultivated ships lie idle at the wharves the workshop and the counting room are abandoned Agriculture receives diminished returns from its labors. Taxation increased tenfold. Churches are turned into hospitals. Schoolhouses and senate chambers are converted into barracks. The people are impoverished. Labor goes uncompensated. Property loses its value. Debts and incomes are uncollectible. Starvation walks abroad in the streets and roads. Noble cities sink into piles of smoking and bloody ruins, helpless women and innocent children suffer untold miseries, and the wrath and madness of man call down the vengeance of heaven. Hugh here, skipping on to the next piece. For myself, I have felt disposed to answer in the words of the great teacher, Blessed are the peacemakers. But I do not deprecate war alone because of the ordinary evils it brings in its train, but because also it still further alienates, for all time, a people whom God and nature and their patriot sires joined together. I deprecate it because the severance thus begun is daily widened and made more incurable by the shedding of fraternal blood, Convinced of the wrongfulness, injustice, and inexpedience of this most causeless and unauthorized war thus forced upon us, convinced by passing events that the policy has been promotive of disunion, I have been led to believe that the true Union men are not these who threaten devastation and slaughter, but they who invoke the persuasive influence and power of peace. I would repeat the language of Edmund Burke. When he urged upon the British government a policy of conciliation towards her rebellious American colonies. The proposition is peace, not peace through the medium of war, not peace to arise out of universal discord, fomented from principle, in all parts of the empire, not peace to depend on the judicial determination, or the precise marking the shadowy boundaries of a complex government. It is simple peace sought in its natural course and in its ordinary haunts. It is peace sought in the spirit of peace and laid in principles purely pacific. If to reason thus be treason, there are many traitors, and if the war continues, we may eventually all deserve the reproach or incur the stigma I believe it to be the duty of Congress while providing for the comfort of the troops and for defense only to refuse the enormous supplies which the administration will demand for their already foreshadowed war of aggression and extermination. I would call upon Congress to exhaust all efforts for peace and for the restoration of the Union. While giving to the government ample means to defend the adhering states if assailed, I would have the people forbid the march of federal troops beyond the borders of those states. Hugh here, skipping on to the next omitted bit. Already and while the war has scarcely begun... Abraham Lincoln and his advisers have assumed to exercise alarming and unconstitutional powers. In the face of a refusal of the late Congress to increase the military forces of the government, he proceeds with an utter disregard of the Constitution to raise a large standing army for three years' service. Without the authority of law, he has violated the sanctity of private correspondence by the wholesale seizure of telegraph dispatches without warrant of law, an act without precedent in the history of a free people. The rights of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, says the Constitution of the United States, For all such usurpations of power, Congress should hold him to a strict accountability, by impeachment or otherwise. It is due to the defense of and maintenance of the constitutional liberties of the North itself. Hugh here, skipping on to the next omitted bit. What then remains to be done? In this exigency, a prompt and Perfect cooperation of all the branches and elements of opposition to the administration of Abraham Lincoln is demanded. Hey, Hugh here. So did you pick up on that common thread? Yep. Abraham Lincoln, who had been martyred since that letter was written, was at the center of almost every piece that the courier left out. Apparently they felt they couldn't afford to print those. Now, this next bit is a callback to Episode 9, and again, you may want to listen to these episodes in order. Anyway, in Episode 9, we saw that, according to the journal, Green, Bennett, and Hunt form a ring whose object is to extort round sums from delinquent members of the National Guard. Now, listen to this. George Ostrander was around yesterday remitting court-martial fines by authority. Too late, George. The way in which the brigade has been run and honest men made to suffer that General Green's favorites might thrive is well understood. Remission won't be a saving ordinance this time. Hugh here, did you catch the accusation? The Standard claims that one of Green's lackeys was going around remitting court-martial fines that Green had imposed, and thus gaining a few more crucial votes from soldiers. Okay, back to the articles. The outrageous record of John A. Green and the loyal record of Charles Andrews, both so conspicuous, have somewhat drawn attention away from the other candidates. The Republican nominees are, however, in all instances preferable to their Democratic opponents and should be voted for strictly. Vote the clean ticket and redeem the city. We have never taken a deeper interest in any election than in that of today, for we feel that the issues involved are of the most vital character. The question is whether we shall have a loyal man— or a copperhead at the head of our city government. We would sooner have Jeff Davis for mayor than John A. Green. The one may be partially excused on account of his southern education. For the latter, there is no excuse. At a large and enthusiastic meeting of the Republicans of the 7th Ward held last evening, the following resolution was unanimously adopted. Resolved that each of us will give the entire day tomorrow to earnest work at the polls and induce our friends and neighbors to do likewise, to the end that loyalty may be recognized and treason in the person of its arch-apostate emphatically condemned. Such is the spirit which animates the breast of every Republican in the city. The democracy will see a power of work done against them today a placard was posted about the streets yesterday which made the democracy very much irritated it bore the following inscriptions if any man attempts to haul down the american flag shoot him on the spot john a dix if any man refuses to hoist the american flag elect him mayor of syracuse john a green It excited the democracy as much as a red flag does a mad bull. Many of the placards were torn down or painted over, the latter operations being incited by a prominent democratic politician. If the words were not true, why become so much bothered? The galled jade winces. Hugh here, and we have another call back to episode 9. You may recall that the journal claimed there was an iron-rolling mill in the 8th Ward where a supervisor threatened to fire anyone who voted for Charles Andrews. Well, check out this follow-up. "'We are authorized to say that the officers of the Delano Ironworks utterly repudiate and disavow the representations made by some of their subordinates, that men would be discharged if they voted the Republican ticket.' The threats against Republican workmen have been made without their knowledge and in opposition to their authority. A certain subordinate who narrowly escaped being mobbed during the war for his secession proclivities has been particularly prominent in making the representations alluded to. His previous history is a sufficient commentary upon his present acts. Let no workman be deceived. They will be allowed, as they should be, perfect liberty in their choice among the candidates the plot at the ironworks was a deep-laid scheme for overawing the voters but it is now thoroughly exploded a lyric in olden feudal times the knights and barons kept among their retainers a minstrel to chant their praises and when they returned victorious from their country's wars or slew some foe in personal contest The minstrel would tune his lyre and through baronial halls the notes of eulogy would fall upon the master's ravished ears the knight and the minstrel of the middle ages have long since departed but in these piping times of peace when state brigadiers who smelt the battle afar off aspire to responsible civic positions it appears that the ancient custom is revived in their honor at least we judge so, from a lyric which appeared in yesterday's Courier, addressed, To the Democrats of Syracuse, which recites in vigorous measure the merits of our valiant peace general, John A. Green, and of which the following is a specimen stanza. Vote for the man who stood by you, though liberty and life were daily threatened by the base creators of the strife who loved his nation's flag too well to diet in the blood of those who fell on either side, the warriors brave and good. And thus John A. Green has his minstrel like the knights of old, who now are dust, whose good swords rust. We violate no proprieties, we are sure, when we state, upon the best of evidence, that the author of the Green lyric is a most estimable and accomplished lady, but one who was born and has ever lived in the South, and whose entire heart, as is most natural, is devoted to the lost cause. We should certainly expect her to sound the praises of the peace candidate for mayor, the brigadier of the white cockade. Hugh here, Aha! I found it! This turns out to be yet another call back to episode 9. Remember that satirical letter from the seat of war on the Canadian frontier? In the letter, the soldier, on picket duty, recounts this encounter with John A. Green. The adventure was tall and graceful. It was closely enveloped in an officer's cloak. It slightly moved its mantle and disclosed the white feather of its military hat. So yeah, the white cockade was obviously a symbol of derision aimed at John A. Green's military command. Okay, on with the articles. General Green's Record John A. Green is no ordinary Democrat. Ordinary Democrats, although they may now differ with Republicans on questions of Reconstruction, in 1861 signed calls for patriotic meetings and subscribed their funds for patriotic purposes. In running over the list of those who subscribed to the first patriotic fund raised in Syracuse, we find these entries. J.P. Haskin, $100. James Johnson, $100. James Lynch, $100. L H Redfield one hundred dollars, H D Denison one hundred dollars, William C Ruger one hundred dollars, John W Barker one hundred dollars, W N D Kirkpatrick fifty dollars, L L Alexander fifty dollars, K H and D E Greigold it's not legible fifty dollars, W D Stewart thirty dollars. We do not find the name of John A. Green in the foregoing, and we know that he was personally applied to, to subscribe out of his abundant means, and he refused to do so, as he stated, upon principle. He believed in the doctrine of not another man or another dollar, which his friend Vallandigham enunciated and lived up to in a wider arena. At that time he openly and boldly favored the recognition of the Confederate States of America. Let him today get his consolation from the friends he was then so anxious to recognize. Let him not ask it of the loyal souls and something hearts of this. And we lose a line or two again, and continuing at the top. General Green's Record We said yesterday that John A. Green was no ordinary Democrat, We stand by the assertion. He was open and avowed in his opposition to the government long before questions of policy made political and party issues. He was against any and every effort to preserve the Union, or, as his minstrel expresses it, he said, to keep the Union tightly bound, let all coercion cease. A logical, philosophical, and patriotic way, this... John A. Green is not an ordinary Democrat. We prove this by his record. On the 22nd of April, 1861, was held in the city of Syracuse a great mass meeting, in which all party lines were obliterated, and all the good citizens, Democrats, and Republicans had but one object, the preservation of the Union of the States. This call was signed by many prominent Democrats, among whom we mention John J. Peck, J. P. Haskin, J. W. Barker, William Winton, L. H. Redfield, Jacob S. Smith, L. L. Alexander, William Kirkpatrick, Donald Kirkpatrick, William C. Williams, W. M. Brewster, D. N J. Leslie, E. S. Jenny, P. Lynch, John Campbell, James Foran, John Molloy, W. W. Green, Horatio G. Glenn, Ezra Downer, E. B. Griswold, M. D. Burnett, and D. J. Halstead. General John A. Green was personally applied to, to sign the call, and utterly and contemptuously refused so to do. In the language of his telegraphic dispatch of a few days before, he openly and boldly favored the recognition of the Confederate States of America. here. Notice something about that list of names. On it appear W.W. Green, John A. Green's cousin and the editor of The Courier, and D.J. Halstead, publisher of The Courier. So the standard is pointing out that, hey, even these guys put their names down on a call for union, and John A. Green wouldn't. Okay, back to it. Have we a traitor among us? The following article from the Daily Standard of April nineteenth, eighteen 1861, will do to republish at this time. Mr. John A. Green, Jr., of the firm of J. Cox and Green, and chairman of the Breckenridge State Central Committee, paid for and sent a lengthy dispatch from the Telegraph Office in this city, which, among other statements, contained the following. The Herald's Albany Dispatch of yesterday stating that Mr. John A. Green, Jr. would call a convention to support Mr. Lincoln's administration is entirely erroneous. That gentleman openly and boldly favors the recognition of the Confederate States of America. This dispatch answers the question at the head of this article. We have a traitor among us, and his name is John A. Green, Jr., He does not seek to conceal his treason, but unblushingly avows the crime before his fellow men and in the light of day. He courts the gaze of an outraged people, and we pillory him for public exhibition. The Utterances of a Patriot On the 21st day of May, 1861, at a public meeting at Syracuse, the Honorable Charles Andrews, our then mayor, and now our candidate again. The events of today are of great moment. It is the movement of a great nation to preserve great principles and constitutional freedom. Under this contest lie great principles and great results are to come from it. War is preferable to the destruction of national honor and individual liberty. It is proper that the ministers of justice should be here, This contest is for the supremacy of the land. Impartial history will brand this rebellion as the most unholy and unjustifiable against a good government that the history of the world has ever known. No fragmentary nation, no dismembered government is ever to take the place of the proudest republic of the world. Contrast these utterances with the utterances of the man who was in favor of recognizing the Confederate states and was against the employment of any agencies of men or money to preserve the United States. Hugh here, and that's it! The last article before the election. Oh man, that was a fun, maddening, frustrating episode, and if you made it to the end, Thank you so much for sticking with it. Next time, the results. This is Hugh Yeman, and you've been listening to The Historic Headlines podcast. Thanks as always to Tom Triniski for all his fabulous work on fultonhistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, I through the air with the greatest of ease, a daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please, and my love he stole away.